him so I don't forget. Now, the one big announcement I have is this. No class next week. Patty and I will be away. We leave Thursday. We don't get back until the following Thursday. So no class next week. Now, I'm, I won't be here on Sunday. Kim Myers is teaching my Sunday class. And my Monday and Tuesday classes won't, just won't be meeting. So wherever we finish today, we will pick up in two weeks. So did everybody get that? No class next week. Don't come. I hate to say, I hate to say that in church, right? Like, don't come. I mean, you're really walking to come and eat your lunch and have some fellowship together. Um, Andy is likely to be here waiting for you next Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, he's a good greeter. So anyway, yeah, no class next week. So we... And we are getting close to the end of 2 Samuel, so just remember, when we finish that, we're going to go do a bit of 1 Kings until David is dead, dead, and dead. And, and then we will leave the stories of David, and we will go to um, the book of Acts. I'll also tell you one thing that has come out of doing the book of Samuel as we have. There's going to be a whole sermon series next year devoted to the stories of David. Some of them, not all of them, probably up to some of the key ones up to God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, that one from his, from his family would always sit on the throne, because I think it's going to lead into a Christology series focused on Jesus and... Um, so that would, that's the idea. So it's not going to actually get into Bathsheba and Uriah and Amnon and Tamar and all that stuff. But you know the story now, don't you? Yes, you know the, you know the whole thing, the dark side. The rest of the story, indeed. Well, in Chronicles, it is a lot cleaned up. But it, it's just it wasn't that because we're trying... We're actually going to try to connect the sermon series more next year so that one sermon series will lead more into the next in a way that makes some sense because it is very hard for people to connect dots. In churches I grew up in, they never worried about connecting any dots, and I grew up woefully ignorant about nearly everything. So um, we're going to try to do, uh, to do more dot connecting week to week and even series to series. We'll see how it goes. But Lauren and I were working on that yesterday and the team met yesterday and kind of fleshed out 2024 sermon schedules. So let's see. Let's do this. I'll open with prayer and then we'll see if there's anything you would like to talk about before we return to 2 Samuel. Okay. Let's pray, gracious Lord. We are grateful to be gathered here today. You bless us in so many ways. One of the most important is calling us to this fellowship so that we can be with our friends, make new friends, new acquaintances, take time out of our week to study your word in a way we would not otherwise. Your word is meant to be studied um, in the community of believers and we are grateful to have the opportunity to do this all this we pray in Jesus name Amen, Amen.
Okay, so, my friends, is there anything you would like to talk about before we return to the book of Samuel? Where are we going next week? Well, we are going to Disney. Disneyland? Yeah, Disney World. I had, I had some, I had like five free nights at Marriott that were going to expire. I got them because I got their credit card. You know how that works, right? Yeah, everybody knows. There's a lot of, there's a lot, if you work it right, there's stuff you can, goodies you can end up with. So we thought about it because we knew we were going to Israel in the spring. Ah, ah, ah. What did we want to do this fall? And we said, well, let's use those five nights at Marriott to go to Disney. And we are, and I think uh, Robert and Savannah, our son and daughter-in-law, one of the sets of sons and daughters-in-law, are going to maybe go with us. They're having a family emergency with a, a relative, but we'll see how that all shakes out. But Patty and I are definitely going, and we're going to go to Disney, and we know how to do it right. And it just happens to be during Epcot's International Food and Wine Festival. Oh, oh yes. And, and one night, so you asked me all this, Gary, one night, we are going to go to the to Germany. You know, you can travel the world at Epcot. We're going to go to Germany and have some good German food, which I love. And yeah, we got the whole thing. Sauerkraut. I love me some sauerkraut. And then we're going to go here. Thirty-eight Special. How many of you remember Thirty-Eight Special, the band? They were my favorite. Okay, go Jan, go. <laughs> so. 38 Special, and another 80s rock band that is now, you know, they, they drive over from the home <laughs> and they put on a concert. And yeah, so anyway, yeah, it'll be fun. We know, we, we know how to do it. And we will relax and have a nice time. We're going to be there long enough. We don't have to be in any big hurry or anything like that. And uh, we did Universal with the grandkids in the summer, so we're just going to do this during the school year when there's not so many children around. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. Yeah. So that's what's happening. Anything else <laughs> besides travel plans? Okay. Well, let's go to Second Samuel. Here is where we are. We are in the appendices. Last week we had the first appendix appended portion um, about the Gibeonites, a story that is set somewhere during David's reign earlier than where the last chapter ended, the previous chapter ended. And some folks think it was, it began as an appendix. Some scholars think it was originally in the book, somehow dropped out and then was appended. We don't know, I don't care. So, but we have the story and it helps explain a few of the kind of missing pieces and questions. So now we come to the next appendix, which is, begins in chapter 22, and it is this um, song of praise from David. And it is a psalm. Remember David? I mean, we've been through the stories of David, haven't we? We've seen good David, and we've seen bad David. And I guess I should comment on this for a second. Lots of Christians go to the Old Testament, and they find these people that are called, like in the book of Hebrews, heroes of the faith. 
and they tend to see them as very one-dimensional. Okay, they're, they're all, they're faithful, they're for God and so forth. And the reason they do that is that they don't read the stories for themselves. Okay, you take the Old Testament heroes are just like you and me. They all do good things. They all do bad things. There are times when they are faithful to God. There are times when they ignore God. Um, go back and read about Samson. I loved Samson when I was in the third grade. Samson had issues. So, and so with David, the idealized king of Israel, he did end up being idealized, which means that, that he, David became somebody where all the warts were covered up. All the problems were covered up. As I told you, told you in the book of Chronicles, in, when it's relating the story of David's kingship, it leaves out the story of Bathsheba, right? And because it, it just cleans it up. It's what we wanna, it's what we wanna do. There's a word that describes such writing. It's called hagiography. It is a writing which, which cleans up all of the, the stuff the writer doesn't really want you to know because they want to lift up this person and clean everything up and they're just, you know, like, yeah, everyone's got a, they've got a big aura of goodness and holiness around them. Well, David does many good things and he's often faithful to God. And one of the great things he does that really reveals, I think, um, a lot about David is his writing of Psalms. He wrote many of the Psalms. You remember when we met David after he was anointed by Samuel, he was brought to the king's, King Saul's court. Why was he brought to King Saul's court? Because he had been anointed by Samuel? No, definitely not. He was brought there because he was a good musician. And the attendants to King Saul thought that David the musician could come with his, ly his lyre, his like a little harp, and play the harp and probably sing for, for the king. And that did, to some extent, alleviate for a time some of Saul's symptoms. So David was a writer of psalms, and you encounter these psalms in the great hymns of the faith. You encounter some of them we know so well, the 23rd Psalm. Some of them we know bits of. We don't even know they're from the Psalms. Many Christians don't realize that when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That it, it is the beginning of Psalm 22. In the life of the Hebrews, the Psalms are their prayer book. It's their prayer book. And they don't have the, none of the stuff is divided into chapters and verses for the Israelites and later the Jews. In Jesus' day, when he opens the scroll of Isaiah, there's no chapters and verses. And that would only happen about 800 years ago. So when, for example, when Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the minds of the people who are there, who would know these scriptures in a way that you and I don't because it's, they don't have big libraries filled with all kinds of things and they don't have TV sets and they don't, 
have, you know, westerns and romance novels and thrillers about, you know, secret agents. They don't have any of that, so they are, they're embedded in these scriptures their whole life. Even if they're illiterate, they hear them their whole lives. So when Jesus calls up the opening verses of Psalm 22, what happens? In their minds, they call up all of Psalm 22, right? It's right there. They don't have to have somebody say it to them, and they know that Psalm 22 is a psalm that begins about forsakenness and ends with salvation, right? Um, psalm 51 is, is well known, famous, it should be, because it is the psalm that David wrote after being confronted by Nathan following his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, and it's a psalm of repentance. So this is a psalm of praise for God. And there is, it begins with David in the pit. There's some chairs and there's another table over here. You're welcome to come to if you would like. Whatever, it's okay, really. These folks are always get, walking over and getting cupcakes throughout class. So <laughs> grab a cupcake on your way by. <laughs> there you go, smart woman. All right, so it begins with David's weighted down by what he has confronted and is confronting. Uh, remember that for a long time Saul and the armies of Israel were chasing David and his band of men through the wilderness, Saul's intention being to kill David. And we saw where it got so bad, remember, that David resorted to going to a Philistine city and ingratiating himself with the Philistine king, so much so that he was going to accompany the Philistines northward into battle against the Israelites until the Philistine, the other Philistine king said, no, he is not welcome. He cannot come. We don't trust him, basically. So um, I am invite you, when, when I was working on this, what constantly struck me, of course, is reading this as if I were an Israeli right now. That's just what, you know, getting up on October 8th and sitting down and, and, and praying this psalm. So, because the Psalms are, sometimes we go to them to express what we're feeling, but a really important part of the Psalms is to let the Psalms shape your heart. We come to worship every Sunday to worship God, but God uses it to shape us. It's like, it's like God's gymnasium for us. God wants to shape us. That's why the way we approach worship is so important. Um, so that it, it does shape us. I thought we had a beautiful All Saints service at 9.30 on Sunday. Um, and, and those little moments of beauty and transformation, they do begin to reorient our hearts to what? To true north, toward God, rather than headed off into the wilderness, which is where our hearts so often want to lead us. 
So this is a song of praise to God. We're going to read through it. <coughs> there are the many, many good bits in here. So and when we hit a bit that you would like to talk about, let me know. Don't be put off by metaphors and so forth that you find in this. This is poetry, right? This is poetry. And poets use a lot of metaphors. They use a lot of word pictures to, to express what they want to express. And David does the same. So in 22 verse 1, begins this way. David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. In whom I take refuge. There are many times in our lives when we should go to God in refuge. Refuge, a place of safety and, and comfort. My shield and the horn, the horn is a picture, uh, is an image of, of power and strength, and the horn of my salvation, my rescue. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my savior from violent people. You save me, Lord. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and have been saved from my enemies. The waves of death swir swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. So in Hebrew poetry, there is not the rhyming of words, which is the poetry I like. I'm very, I don't like it when English poets cheat about that. You know, you know, you see that sometimes? The words just don't quite work, right? But they're trying. Well, I try harder, I say. <laughs> so, but in Hebrew poetry, it doesn't work like that. In Hebrew poetry, it is about a poetry between the two lines. So, look at verse, well, look at verse 6. The first line, the cords of the grave coiled around me. Second line, the snares of death confronted me. So there is a rhyming in the thought between the two lines. You get the first line, then the line that follows repeats the thought of the first line, um, but expresses it in a different way. That's the rhyming, it's rhyming of the thought in Hebrew poetry. Most of the time, that's that that that's how it works, and and um, that's all is that's all that is intended by the similarity between the thought in the first line and the second. Verse seven: In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. So what will God do? 
David's voice has gone up. God's ears have heard it. What will God do? The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. This is all metaphorical, right? This is about God, God's wrath, um, which, you know, people sometimes have difficulty with God being wrathful. Do you want to, do you want to put your faith in a God who doesn't care about what happened on October, on October, the morning of October 7th? I don't. I want to, I hope that God is angry and wrathful about what happened on the morning of October 7th. It was simply wrong, 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 wrong. It was about the destruction of the good. That's what evil is. Evil is the destruction of the good. You want God to be angry about that. It's a righteous anger. All anger isn't bad. It's just how, what, where does it come from and where is it directed and how is it acted upon? There is a righteous anger. So, he parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. A cherubim is a creature common to a number of ancient Near Eastern cultures. A cherubim is a winged creature who is largely a guardian, sometimes a watcher, um, who, who with, with the, they're not an angel, they're not human. In the Old Testament, they are creatures, winged creatures, sometimes with eyes in the front of their head and the back of their head, who watch and guard. And so you find them in the Old Testament and you find them in the book of Revelation. When you are taken in the book of Revelation to the throne room of God, there are cherubim. They are the guardians. They are the watchers. There are also angels and there are also the elders of the church there. Okay? But there are cherubim. They aren't a cherub in the Bible. It's not some fat little guy with, an, with a little bow and arrow waiting to go shoot you through the heart or something. Cherubic is not a word that is... This, I don't know how that ever got started, actually. But it messes up with a lot of people because you have these cherubim. Cherubim is plural. You have these cherubim in the Bible and they're... You see them depicted not just... You know, the Israelites didn't depict so many things in images because they weren't supposed to make a graven image of God, so they didn't tend to make images of anything. But you do see them in other near, ancient Near Eastern cultures around the Israelites. These, these cherubim, these, these heavenly creatures. He mounted the cherubim and flew. This is God. This is the metaphor. This is, he mounted, it's all supposed to, <laughs> are, does, has anybody here seen Lord of the Rings? I keep using references and nobody knows what I'm talking about. 
You know, don't, don't you love the moment when Gandalf climbs on top of the eagles and the eagle is flying him to safety? Oh, I love that part. <laughs> yeah, so Gandalf is on the wings of the eagle. Here God mounts the cherubim and flies. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, which is made even brighter by what? The darkness? Ever go to the Cinemark Theater, see a movie, and come out to the Texas sun in the middle of August? Yes. And you can't see? You can be run down by a dozen cars before you realize what was happening. Because you can't see a darn thing. Yes, the darkness makes the brightness even brighter, of course. He made darkness's canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. The Lord, Yahweh, that's his name there, Yahweh, thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning, he routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare at the rebuke of Yahweh, at the blast of breath from his nostrils. This is David's rescuer. This is the rescuer of the Israelites. Time and again, this is the way they understood God, that God in his magnificent glory would rescue them. And God does. That's the thing. I was talking to a small group last night and I, and, and I, got, I, I got to thinking and talking about the fact that there are so many occasions in the Old Testament story when you would expect God would finally say, oh you people and brush the dust off his feet as Jesus puts it and head off to some other planet but he doesn't he stays and stays and stays all the way to providing one faithful Jew God incarnate Jesus who suffers and dies for us all it is the most remarkable story that anyone could ever tell. And I'm not surprised that a lot of people don't buy it. In part, I, I, I sort of get that. Some of, many of us grow up with it and we get very used to the story. But wow, what a story it is. Um, and the evidence for the truth of that story begins with what? What? My friends, what, what, what? The resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus hadn't been resurrected, none of you would be here. You would be off on Tuesday, eating lunch, or doing whatever else you were doing. It's the resurrection of Jesus. That is the beginning of all discussions about the truthfulness of this. So, okay. 
at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of breath from his nostrils. Verse 17, he reached down from on high and he took hold of me and he drew, out, drew me out of the deep waters. Right, this metaphor for the deep, deep trouble that David is in, being chased from place to place to place to place by Saul and his army. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but Yahweh was my support. He brought me out to a spacious place. He rescued me. Why? Why does God stay with these people? Why does God stay with us? Why is God still working in this world? Because he delighted in me. God delights in every one of you. God loves the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. For whom? For you. For all of us. For everyone. He delighted in me. Why did God make the world in the first place? In order to make a people whom God could love and delight in and who would in turn love and delight in God. This is just, if you're a Bible marker, mark this. He rescued me because he delighted in me. It doesn't say because I'm a really good guy, or I'm David, or I'm the king of Israel, or anything else like that, does it? No. Why? Why did God rescue David? Why does God rescue us? And we need rescuing every bit as much as David did. We live in a world filled with way too much brokenness. And we've seen it on our TV sets now. And it's just, he rescued me because he delighted in me. God made the world in order to make the church. Great, great phrase from uh, Professor Simon Chan. God made the world in order to make the church. I know God loves, I'm sure God loves mountains and creeks and all that kind of stuff. But it is the people. Why is it the people and not the beautiful mountains and the Alps and these pictures I see on Facebook or Twitter where it's just, just staggeringly beautiful. Why not the mountains? Because mountains don't love. You and I have the capacity to love. God-given capacity to love. God is what John writes five times in his short writing, 1 John. What he, God is what? How do you fit it? What's the blank? Love. That's the blank. That's the all-important thing about God that, you, that John reiterates five times. And you see it embodied in the person of Jesus. It is Jesus who reveals to us that God in God's very being is actually love. It's not just enough to say God loves you or he loves the world. In his very being, God loves. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father. No matter how many times I talk about this, I always get excited about it. The triune God is inherently relational. Love is where you start 
in understanding who God is. That, that was John Calvin's big mistake. He didn't start there. He should have started there. He would have ended up in a bad, better place and maybe he wouldn't have burned Michael Servetus at, you know, at the stake. Okay, so he rescued me because he delighted in me. Did anything here to indicate that, that David deserved it? Nah. God swoops down out of the heavens on the wings of a cherubim, or like Gandalf on the wings of an eagle. Who is it that saves the hobbits on the side of Mount Mordor? Mount whatever it's called. An eagle, right? Soaring down out of the heavens. Big, beautiful creature. Flies them out. Same idea here. Rescue, rescue, rescue. Verse 21. The Lord has dealt with... Now, this, these next verses, you know, are not where I would begin to build my Christian theology. Okay? Remember, this is David's song. That, In my view, there's some things David doesn't understand fully. So let's see what he says. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. Hmm. Hmm. Really, David? I guess you wrote this before Bathsheba came, right? For you, right? For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I am not guilty of turning from my God. Hmm. You know, remember we read the early stories of David and he was inquiring of God a great deal. But I, I think David here, he's not sufficiently self-aware. Or he's trying to change the narrative a little bit. Well, I don't know. I, I, I don't know that he's trying to change the narrative. I, I think it's very easy for us to see the sins of others and ignore the ones in ourselves. That's why I always counsel people, do not get into rank ordering sins. Yes, they differ in their effect upon others. Yes, committing murder is worse than gossiping about somebody in the effect it has on the other person and even yourself. However, here is the problem with rank ordering sins you will invariably find that the sins others commit are much worse than the sins you commit. They're up there at 8, 9, and 10s, and you are down there at 0 0.5, point <laughs> 0.7, you know. Yeah, that's just how we are. It is, it's why sometimes you have to have people who care about you who will help you to see the truth about what you have done. Let's take David for an example because we've been in David for a long time. Who enables David to see something he should have seen for himself, but he didn't? Who enables David to see the horror that he has done to Bathsheba and Uriah? Nathan the prophet. 
who comes from God, and he doesn't even tell him directly. He does it in a way, remember because he tells the story about the man with the little gold, gold and the rich man who, who, who took this little lamb that the poor man had raised, and David is ready to have the guy. I mean, the, he should have caught on that was a parable, but anyway, <laughs> he's ready to have the rich man off with his head. But he does it in a, such a wonderful way, Nathan does, that it drives home the point, and then Nathan spins and points his arm in David and says, you are that man. You are that taker. You've become the man that Samuel warned everyone about in 1 Samuel 8, about kings being takers. You become that man, David. So that's a real blessing for David, for Nathan to do that. We need people who will do that for us. And it doesn't have to be in giant, massive things. Like I said, I don't think many of us are likely to murder somebody in this life. But there are lots of ways that we do smaller things that are not loving. Gossip is one of my favorite examples. You know, just, 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 just don't gossip about other people. Don't put down other people behind their backs. Other people might, I can remember being in an office environment and it, and it happened and it's easy to get pulled in and join into it. No, because when you're the one who's out of the office, you'll be the one talked about for one reason. But secondly, it's just, it's just not right. It's just not right. And David here, I have kept the ways of the Lord. I am not guilty of turning from my God. Well, he, uh, when he wrote this, I think for his whole life he would see himself as someone who was faithful to God but made a terrible mistake. Those don't have to be. Those two things can be held together in my mind. You can be faithful to God and make terrible mistakes. And David is, I think, in the Bible, a great example of someone who, who is that. What's, an, what's another one? What's another one that we, we look at and we sort of shake our heads? Well, Peter comes to my mind. Peter, who, who doesn't have the strength or courage to even admit that he's a Jesus follower. Is that a faithful moment for him, really? No. But it doesn't define him. For on Pentecost, he will be rescued by God and the arrival of the Holy Spirit, and he will rise and preach this, this incredible, magnificent sermon. So, but do I think David is, lacks some self-awareness here? I do. Verse 23, all his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. And I want to say, no, David, you haven't. I don't care when you're writing this, you haven't. The law boils down to loving God and loving others. That's the magnificent thing that Jesus did. Jesus is not innovative in ways that you might think. He doesn't like invent incredibly new ideas. He, he, he focuses 
the Jews on the essential truth that they had lost sight of, that was buried underneath all of their complicated laws and understanding of the laws, and no, you can't carry your mat on the Sabbath, and you can't raise it above your head, and all this other ridiculous things that they saw as being the keeping of the law. And Jesus says, ah, you know, Keeping the law means loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving others, loving your neighbor every day. And that, my friends, nobody, none of us do. As Paul puts it, and he was a super Jew, okay, he would, he, that's how he described himself, you know, rip the shirt open and there's a Superman outfit with a big J on it. That's Paul. He understands, Paul, Paul was an A++ guy of great intellect. And he took his A++-ness and intellect and moved it from being a persecutor of Jesus to being an apostle of Christ, okay? But he was not shy about his own, how he stood in the world of law-keeping. There was nobody better, nobody better at it than Paul was. He applied himself to it very very well. But he came to see in light of Christ. What does he write in Ephesians? No one, no one measures up to God's glorious standard. What is that standard? That you would love God and love neighbor every day and in every way. That's what the standard is. And he says nobody really does. Hence we are saved by grace. So that nobody can boast. You can't boast about your salvation. You can't, you can't find in yourself this sense of spiritual superiority. And thus God chose you to be the one whom God was lucky enough to get to rescue. Mm -mm. Nope. So, I would like to sit down with David. Maybe someday I will have the chance to do that. We will both be resurrected. I'll have some time on my hands. <laughs> I think in eternity you don't have to be in a hurry about anything, right? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, and I'll, I would like to ask him, okay, David, first of all, when did you write this? And what did you mean you kept yourself from sin? And, and maybe he would have already met Paul who might have met him first and pulled him over to the side and said, David, I need to talk to you. Okay, or maybe Jesus would even do it. So anyway, okay, verse 25. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. Mm -mm. God re rewarded him, God rescued him because God was delighted in him. God was delighted in him. God loved, so loved the world, John 3.16, and sometime read the next verse, 3.17, John 3.17, God loved, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And Jesus came in to save the world, not to condemn it. If you find, I'm going to get it on a rant here in a second. So, if you find yourself too, part of this is because I heard a sermon, part of a sermon by a guy named Mark Driscoll. Anybody know who Mark Driscoll is? Yeah, you do, Charles? 
My head was spinning around my shoulders. His sermon is directly tied to the darkness of the human heart, feeding off of it. I, w I was stunned. If you, if you come to the place where you find that it's your job to condemn all the people whom you think Jesus couldn't possibly love or usher into the kingdom of God, you're in a terrible place. You're in a terrible place. John 3, 17, Jesus came into the world to save it, not condemn it. It's not, what does God want? What's God's desire? God's desire is Genesis 12, 3, that all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. And we are way too human. I'm not us here. I may be, I, Christians can be way too oriented to seeing themselves as gatekeepers. And we're going to decide who's in, who's out. I have read some of the most astounding comments on social media over the last 15 years about the level to which Christians are ready to take their gatekeeping. I remember one wrote, several wrote, if you don't believe in justification by faith, you're out. It's almost as if they think that you are, you can be justified by faith by believing in justification by faith or something. I don't know. It's not. It's about Jesus. It's about, it is about Jesus. And so, if you want a little word thing to keep in your head, we're not gatekeepers. We are to be ushers, bringing people to Christ, bringing people to Christ. And who, who gets to make, who, who has the responsibility to make decisions about who spends with eternity with God and who doesn't? Who does that, you and me? No, Jesus does. So, anyway, enough of all that. Wow, how'd I get into all that? Yes. Okay, can I repeat that so everybody can hear it? <laughs> so she says, she says, wow, I, I just bet you Jesus never was sitting around with all the disciples and leaned over to, to John and said, can you believe Peter's wearing that robe with those sandals? <laughs> Good point. So let me tell you another thing to put with that. In the Ten Commandments, which does have murder in it, what's the tenth one? Thou shalt not covet. And I always thought, I've always thought that, as I've, that, I've always thought that, well, God is really smart. So God put that tenth one there. So if you think you're kind of skating, you haven't murdered, you haven't stolen anything. I'm sorry, it's Steve's. I don't want to, I don't want to mess something up. Okay. He's not here. Okay. <laughs> anyway, okay. So, that covet is there 
Because if you think you skated through the other ones, I haven't stolen, I haven't murdered anybody. That tenth one is going to get you, right? Which, who, who among us has never coveted what somebody else has? Who among us has never been envious? Envious is, has a kind of a specific definition. Envy really is feeling bitter when others have it better. Of course it can. Covetousness is like is like a like an entry gate. What we would say now in the world of drugs, it's it's an entry level drug, right? That takes you to some onward to something else. The the point being that David, you may say you haven't sinned, but you're you're simply wrong. So let's talk about that. How bold am I to correct David? Anyway, anything else? before we go on. Yes. Yes, I think he did write it. Well, I'm guessing he did write it before Bathsheba because it's so much about, what is it? it's introduced him, him escaping Saul, right? And not falling into Saul's hands. Where did Steve go? Could, could you flip on the, the, the silencer there on the side? Just do that. There you go. That'll work. You can tell him when he comes back. You can tell him when he comes back, you, you put it on, you know, corporate silence or whatever that, that thing is on the side. So, where was I? When he wrote this. Oh, well, I mean, it says, it, when it begins it, it says he wrote it over the, his salvation from Saul. So for me, that would put it very early, long before Bathsheba. But that doesn't mean that he's right when he says, I have kept myself from sin. Right? It, it, would, be, it would be Jesus who would come and teach his fellow Jews about the true meaning of sinfulness. Because for Je- in Jesus' day, you know that you know many of the Pharisees and scribes thought that they had lived a life free from sin because they were so focused on the minutia of what you could do on a Saturday that you couldn't possibly walk through a field of wheat and bend down and pick up a stalk and sort of chew on the end of it. Not that I'd want to, but that you couldn't. And Jesus says, says no, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Well, of course you can. Or they, they chew Jesus out for, for healing on, on the Sabbath. And Jesus is the one who shows them and us that that's misguided. It's not about the minutiae. Humans love to keep minutiae. Min- no, nah, I'm not me. I, I, minutiae is, I, I'm not. But there are a lot of people who really want to be in control and want to keep all the rules, all the regulations. They just want it all completely spelled out for them, everything they have to do to achieve a certain goal. That's part of the attraction of Mormonism. And, and Jesus just kind of blew all that, blew all that apart and said, look, what are the two great commandments? To love God and love others. The first tab, the first tablet, and the second tablet. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor. Okay. Hey, do you have another slide other than that? 
Yeah, let's see. How about this one? Okay. All right. I don't have many slides. Yes? That, yes, yes, you can look up the, the laws and the regulations, and it's like some number of 600 and something in Jesus' day, and you would find it in things like the Mishnah and the Talmud and so forth. You will find some of that, but just, just Google it, and it's, you, you, you can find more, more about it. it. I understand the source. Because what is, one of the commandments is what? To keep the Sabbath, to not work on the Sabbath. Well, what question does that beg? What is work? And from that question, you could follow it all the way through to finally Jesus gets chewed out for healing a man on the Sabbath. And you end up there and you realize it somewhere. Or you should realize that somewhere you got off track. <coughs> Would God really want that man to just wait another day? No. I don't think so. I don't think so. So, okay. All right. Now, back to anything else? Because I'm here to help best I can. Yes. Pa yes. struggling a little bit with um, the idea that Jesus um, is always there and will always save us just because of his delight, you know, because he loves us so much, his delight, because, uh, or how does the covenant make, I think it's a, a, a bunch of things, but, but he comes to, because I can't tell, <laughs> where does the covenant he made with Everyone fit into that concept of. I guess I'm struggling with the idea that God is. is so. Light and happy. I mean, there are rules. There was a covenant. There was a. Okay, so let's talk about the covenant. The covenant is given by God to the Israelites at Mount Sinai, right? And right, right. So, so they and the Israelites do what? They say, they say three times that they're going to keep this covenant. Do they keep that covenant? No. Right? So God supplies. God takes on human flesh and becomes the one Jew who will be faithful to that covenant. Now, in the eyes of the Pharisees, is Jesus faithful to that covenant? No. Because in their eyes, you don't heal on the Sabbath. You don't stop and pick up, you don't break off a piece of wheat and eat it because by then their laws have progressed to the point where that's, that's something you don't do. And so Jesus teaches them something they don't want to hear, which is that of he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And of course you can heal on the Sabbath. And so... So what does the law become? That's the questions the Christians had to answer. Because in the early decades after Christ, it were, er, nearly everybody was Jewish coming to Jesus. 
for it's, it's that way everybody is Jewish for at least a decade decade or more and when the Gentiles begin to come in some of these Jewish Christians say well you know Jesus kept the law you should keep the law we got this whole big body of rules and covenants and regulations and all that kind of thing and so the Christians had a big meeting at the Hyatt Regency in <laughs> Jerusalem in 50 AD to take on this question because one of the questions was should the incoming Jews be circumcised? If they really want to be a Christian, if you really want to be a follower of Jesus, should you keep the law? Should you be circumcised? If it was good enough for Jesus, why isn't it good enough for us? And the Christians said no. No, it's changed. Everything has changed because of Jesus. Paul writes in the Galatians that the law was like a nanny. Uh, a nanny is, some, is someone whom children have until they grow up and don't need that nanny anymore. So Paul says the law was like a nanny. And he says to the Jewish Christians who are arguing for the fact that the incoming Christ Gentiles all need to keep every aspect of the Jewish law. He is saying to them, they're called Judea Judaizers, the, the law was like the nanny and it, it was good and it served its time, but its time has passed because of Jesus. Its time has passed. And so how do, how do I teach the law now? I teach the law is comprised of several pieces, the law of Moses. One is the ethical piece, right? Because Jesus said what? We are to love God and love others. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like the Ten Commandments for one. It looks like Exodus 25.3. You find your enemy's oxen tied to a tree, your enemies, mind you, take it to them. That's, that's all these little pieces in the law that construct a picture of what it means to love your neighbor. Another piece of the law are all the priests and all the sacrifices. Well, they were to enable God to dwell with God's people, keep them safe, I know, keep them safe from God's holiness, as it were, and, but in Jesus that passed. Famously, in Mark's Gospel, when Jesus is crucified, the curtain in the temple is torn, signifying that the distance between God and humanity has been bridged by God. So, and as the writer of Hebrews says, well, we don't need priests anymore. We don't need these sacrifices anymore. We go, hey, we have the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus. We have the ultimate priest in Jesus. All that stuff was good and important but it served its time. And some of the law is, are these odd things that are really there to instruct the people that there is that which is, there is the holy and there is the not holy. Because you see, we don't want to think of ourselves as not holy, right? We would just kind of push all that together. But no. So, what does God tell the people to do? Don't make your shirts out of two types of 
fabric, is that the right word? Don't, don't combine cotton and, cotton and wool. I don't know anything about it. Don't plant your field mixing together two crops. Keep them separate, separate, separate. Because God is holy and the people are not. So we as Christians, it isn't that, it isn't really that we, Jesus came and said, well, never mind about the law. The law has a lot in it to teach us about what it means to love others. But in Christ, we have transcended the law. We are, we are the adults. And Paul says in Galatians to the Judaizers, you don't want to go back. Why would you go back? God has brought you past all of that. You, we Christians, we have been reborn. We are new people. The Holy Spirit dwells in each of us. Don't, don't go back. Go forward. Go forward. And so Jesus, you know, says, when asked, what are the two great commandments? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's from the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, 18. It's all drawn from the law. It's just, it's just, re, it's just coming to recast the law in light of new creation and new birth that we enjoy in Christ. Is that at all helpful or, <laughs> you know, now, so let me, another way I could be, you might miss, I might not be making clearly, God delights in people, it's why God stays, but are there, are there those who will shake their fist at God so long that they won't spend eternity with God? I think the Bible's pretty clear, the answer to that is yes. And if you think the answer to that is no, you end up turning God into somebody who will take somebody dragging and screaming. But that's not the story in Scripture. We're adults. Nannies are for children. Um, Paul uses the example of a guardian. You know, we, the law was a guardian. We don't, need a, we don't need that anymore. So he says to the Corinthians, you know, you're like children. I have to feed you milk now, but I want to feed you meat. You're adults. Will you act like it? Anyway, okay. Wow. Quick question. Sorry. Yes. You're no longer making any sound. Did you turn off your volume by mistake? No. You're still, you're still live, but it's completely silent. Silent. Well, maybe somebody interrupted me. I don't know. Let me look over here on my... No? That's on? Let me check my... It's on in here, right? Yes. So the body pack's on. No, not when, if you could hear me in there, the streamers should be able to hear me. I know. So it's a so. So it's a Facebook pro, it's a Facebook problem. Has to be. But if if the sound if my battery pack runs out of battery, the streamers won't hear me either. They get what goes through this little black device on my waist, just like you do, with no sensors. Okay, now, verse 26, ready to go on? You didn't think we would spend so long. I didn't either. No. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. 
To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. Of course God is faithful. Of course God is blameless. What do you want to know about Jesus? What? He is faithful to his vocation. All the way to death, Paul writes, death on a cross. To the pure, you show yourself pure, but to the devious, I love this, <laughs> to the devious, you, so, you show yourself shrewd. Now, shrewd's a funny word, isn't it? Shrewd is, I, I wouldn't like to be called shrewd. Shrewd is, has this, right? It, 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 is, it is that God is responsive to all of us. And when you are faithful to God, you see God's faithfulness. If you're going to try to be devious with God, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna see a shrewd God. And who is, and I don't know if that's really because God is changing as opposed to you are the observer of what God is doing and you see it differently. Many people ascribe terrible things to God out of ignorance. They ascribe terrible things to God because they, they don't. This is a lot of atheists and stuff who will opine at great length about the horrors of God and they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know their Bibles. I have read their books. I'm like, how many of you seen the movie Patton? Yeah, yeah, he's got the glasses up and he says, Rommel, you bastard, I read your book. But without his voice breaking. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, Anyway, verse 28, you save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. That's Mary's song when she encounters, Mary Jesus' mother's song when she encounters um, Elizabeth and they meet with these two women who are pregnant and Mary sings the Magnificat, my, my soul magnifies the Lord and it's all about a world turned upside down where the rich are brought low and the poor and the humble are all lifted up. Humble is an important word for Christians. We need to be a humble people. Um, and we're often not. You, Lord, are my lamp. The Lord turns my darkness into light. With your help I can advance against the troop. With my God I can scale a wall. As for God, His way is perfect. What do we, what do the preachers here talk about a lot? And, and what do I talk about a lot? Walking in God's way. God's way is perfect. If we focused ourselves more on walking in God's way rather than our way, the world would be a much, much, much better place. As for God, His way is perfect. It has to be. Who, how do we know what good is? Well... I'll talk about that in a second. 
good is, we know what good is because God has shown us. God is good. Now evil is, we have to be careful how we talk about it because it's easy to end up seeing evil as some sort of dark force in the world. Now, if you, if you, if you want to talk about Satan, that's one thing, but if you see it as just this impersonal dark force in the world, you have to ask yourself, well, who made that dark force? Who created evil? And who created everything there that there is? God. Who pronounced it all good? God. So Christian theologians have always been careful to cast evil as nothing. And those who commit an evil act are those who destroy the good. Destroy what is good. That is what happened on October 7th. All of that goodness and those children and their grandmother was all destroyed. The, the bank of goodness in the world was decreased that morning. Right? It, it's good. It's a, you know, you have to kind of train yourself sometime to think about these things better because our brains get, get shaped by things like Star Wars and stuff, the movies, which I know everybody has seen. But, um, you know, they need to be shaped by, by Scripture. God's way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides Yahweh? The answer being nobody. And who is the rock except our God? Nobody. You, there's no place in which you can take sure refuge except God. Now you might say to me, well, Scott, so-and-so just died of cancer, and so-and-so, look at the people who were, who were murdered on October 7th, and on and on. You have to have a larger view of human existence. Our death is not our end. We will all die. And it doesn't mean that God is not your rescuer. You are rescued to an enduring, eternal reconciliation with God. When you come to faith in Christ, you are reborn and you step into eternity then. It isn't something that just happens when you die. You step into, you step into God's eternity with then then. So, even if a person dies a terrible, terrible, tragic death, it is not their end. There is still a life after death, and blessedly a life after life after death, the life of, of, of resurrection. So, It is God who is our sure ground and hope. Otherwise, we're like those who see themselves as beings on this planet who when they die, it's like a candle that's extinguished and they're just gone and there is nothing. What a, ter what a terrible burden to live with, I would think and so mistaken.
You know, people will say, well, gosh, I guess I could wait to the last minute I live and throw myself on Jesus and be okay. The problem is you would have wasted your whole darn life, you know, chasing the wrong things and, and living in fear and anxiety when you can transcend so much of that if you will come to see that God is our rock, God is our refuge, He is our rescuer, death is not our end. Gosh, I'm pounding the table a lot. My arms and hands are getting sore. <laughs> Who is God besides Yahweh? Who is the rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He causes me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. How do you explain David's success in the wilderness unless God was going to see that David did? That he survived the onslaught of Saul and his army. And in that chase, which lasted a very long time, we see some of the best, the best of David. When David has the opportunity to kill Saul in the cave and doesn't, right? or at the camp, and doesn't, and doesn't. So when we come back next week, we are going to... Aha! I should have left that slide up, shouldn't I? There we go, Scotty boy. There is the slide. I needed that up all this time. So we're going to pick it up there, and then we, when, when the psalm is finished, this appendix, we'll go on to the next appendix, which is David's last words. And then we get to a long appendix about some of David's fighting men, including who, Charles? Benaiah. Oh, my, yes. Okay. So, anyway, I see it's 115. So, what? Okay. So, I'm going to close us in prayer. If you would join me, gracious Lord. Indeed, you are our rock. You are our Savior. You are our refuge. Help us to to take that in and simply to know it. To know it, know it, know it in the deepest fibers of our being. That indeed your Holy Spirit dwells in us and you have, you have recreated us anew as your people. And that even death will not hold us. That we will enjoy a life after death with Christ and then a life after death, life after life after death, a, a life of resurrection newly embodied with Christ and with one another. That's something to hope for. That's something to know is coming. All this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.